For many of us, it is the most important commitment to take care of our loved ones. We need, we feed, as the Beatles song goes, and we work hard to ensure that those close to us are thriving. We do this often without training support or even knowing that we've become caregivers. Today, there are 53 million people taking care of their parents, neighbors, or friends, and there are 53 million stories. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. I'm your host, Ken Stern. The coronavirus pandemic has upended our lives in many ways. It's changed work, politics, education, travel, even where and what we eat. And our worst public health crisis in a century has exposed many of the hardships facing caregivers and the limitations of our formal and informal elder care system. But today we look at one story of a couple sheltering in place without respite, isolated even from their family caregivers. My name is John Stagliano and I was taking care of my parents, both of them, John and Catherine Stagliano, who are 82 years old. I'm a cancer survivor, so they took care of me when I had cancer. So, you know, to return a favor there, it wasn't something that was hesitated or or talked about. They needed me. I was there. John's parents both contracted coronavirus at the end of February. They refused to be admitted to a hospital or a rehab facility. Instead, they weathered the virus from the basement of their home, completely alone without any human contact. We didn't get within six feet of them. We talked to them like I was standing on the sidewalk and she would be in the door. So we were talking 20, 25 feet from them when we actually were able to see them in the doorway. That's very difficult. We were constantly worried about them. Didn't know if something was going to go wrong very quickly. And I guess that was where we were more afraid. Um, between that and then not being able to take care of one another at that time, that was, that was extremely scary. And most of that just came from being uh, very afraid of something going to happen, especially with everything that was being said on the news about, you know, how it affects the elderly, how many people have died from it. And when something does attack them, you know, they're going to be very much susceptible to it. So I got outfitted with, from the uh, home health care people with the vinyl gowns and gloves and, and masks and so forth so that if I did have to go in to the house, I was as protected as I possibly could be. In fact, they even wanted me to move into their house. And um, when I discussed that with my brothers, they really didn't want to go in there. And if if I got it as well as them, that's not going to do anybody any good. So I kind of just stayed close. Just a 24-7 worry, anxiety. But I never really went in. Anytime we brought them anything, we would leave. I would leave it on the step or in the garage, and they would come out and get it. They felt like they were, I don't know, in prison. They couldn't do anything. They weren't even allowed out to get their mail. Um, my brother David would go every other day to pick their mail up and, and drop it off on the step. So it was very difficult for them not to be able to do that and as you know they were 
weren't aware of like all the things that were going on outside of the house, like with the stores and not being able to get in and having to wear a mask. And they were just completely unaware of that other than what they saw on the news. They hadn't experienced it. So when they would give me a grocery list, they would give me a very specific grocery list when they started to cook again. And I was like, uh, unfortunately, you're going to get what I can what I can get because there's a, not a lot in the grocery store. They set him up with home health care uh, where they would actually um, set him up with a, an app on his uh, iPad so that they could monitor his vitals and see what he was doing. So it was kind of a video app like, like the Zoom. Uh, so I called several times a day to get his vital signs. And the more I called, the more exhausted my mother seemed to get. She was just getting worn out running up and down steps. So I guess the scariest moment was when she, when I went to, to see her and tell her, we told her she was going to the hospital and she passed out. And when she passed out, she banged her face on the, glass at the door and just kind of her face just kind of slid down the door and and she was out i mean she was just out that was really scary when we knew it was okay was when they were able to get out the first thing they did was a father went to the grocery store um <laughs> he went to the grocery store on his own a mother was getting her own mail she was happy as the clam to do that I'm so glad to be outside. That's John Stagliano. His parents, John and Catherine Stagliano, are fully recovered from the coronavirus. Joining us now to talk about caregiving lessons from the pandemic are New York Times reporter Paula Spann and Grace Whiting, the CEO of the National Alliance of Caregiving. I asked Paula whether the advent of telemedicine, like the technologies used by the Staglianos, would benefit more caregivers going forward. I think so, with the caveat for some people, for a lot of people, because um, not only would that have not been possible a few years ago, that wouldn't have been possible probably in January. The whole uh, healthcare system suddenly realized that this, uh, this thing called telemedicine that had been adopted very slowly and kind of in a, in a, slow pace and and in very in some places and not others and Medicare had very restrictive uh, regulations about when you could use it and when not in in about two weeks everyone said oh this isn't going to work and so telemedicine became far more broadly available and now the question will be whether Medicare will continue allowing it to flourish and fund it Uh, and I think caregivers would would agree that for uh, older and disabled people Getting them to doctors' offices, even when there's no pandemic, is extremely difficult and time-consuming. It can take your entire morning. It's, um, it exposes them to, uh, to problems, even things like, is there an elevator in the building? How can I get my, my uh, beloved person in and out of the car? It's, it's difficult. It takes a lot of time. Sometimes you do need to see uh, a doctor or healthcare worker face-to-face. Sometimes they need to put hands on you or do blood work or things like that. But a lot of time, it's just a conversation and you don't have to be there in person. So I do think this is an advance um, for a lot of uh, people and their caregivers, except that 
older people are not always comfortable with the technology. Lots of places, including rural places, still don't have broadband access. Um, they might need help. So like many things, it will benefit some segments of the older population more than others. But on the whole, um, when I talk to, uh, to families and when I talk to healthcare professionals, they said, we should have done this years ago. And it's one of the uh, slight benefits of the pandemic is that we're doing it now. Is there a better way forward um, uh, for people in John's situation? Um, if this happens again, how should we handle people like John's parents in the situation John faced? In, in facilities, there are some things that we could do. If, you're, if, you're, if you haven't seen your parents for months because they're in a nursing home or an assisted living facility that's shut down to visitors, that is something that geriatricians and other experts are talking about because we know that family members who come to see their loved ones in facilities are not just visitors. They're not just coming to have a chat, you know, and bring a balloon or a plant. They're part of the care team. Sometimes they're the only reason that somebody is getting enough calories because the overworked aide has to leave the tray or the bag outside the door and the person needs help eating. But for people like John's parents who are not in a facility, who are at home, um, you know, some people have made that same decision, that they're a bubble, they're a pod. There are three or four people, all of whom are being extremely careful and isolating from everybody else. Those people can interact with each other. So maybe the caregiver and the parents or the relatives say, right, there are four of us, we're going to be able to have careful contact with each other. You're going to be able to come into my home, but no one else. And that's a level of risk that we can sustain in exchange for being able to have some human contact. Because caregiving at a distance, as too many people learn, whether it's a distance across states or a distance across town or whether you just can't get past the, first door, the front door, you don't really know what's happening. You can't really do what you need to do. It's unsustainable for very long. So, Grace, um, what do you think? You know, you said if this happens again and at the risk of sounding... Um, like a doomer, <laughs> I think. I think the reality is when it happens again, um, you, you know, it's not just it's not just an infectious disease. You've also got really impact of climate change that you know people sort of they're aware of this vague existential threat. But if you think about, for example, the California wildfires last year, when you go back and look at who was impacted in those wildfires, disproportionately older adults were impacted. So, and and I'm a child of Louisiana, when Hurricane Katrina happened, um, you know, people in facilities, people with disabilities, older adults were again, disproportionately impacted. So the reality is we really need to rethink the way that we're caring for each other and consider approaching this as more of a public health issue than as an individual responsibility. We see the CDC doing that in areas like dementia where they're thinking about how does this affect the public health? What can we do in the public health to better support people who are caring for someone with dementia? And they've even created a roadmap um, looking at that. But I think that conversation needs to be broader to recognize that disabilities 
at any age are just a normal part of our life, whether it's a chronic disease like diabetes or your partner gets cancer and you're in your 40s and you're navigating that. The reality is, is that people are going to have health care issues. So we need to rethink the way that we're handling that in our homes, but also with respect to our workplace and with respect to our community and to identify where the community can provide really helpful support but where we also need you know medical professionals payers the government to help us fill the gap in places where the lift is just too much for an individual person or family so grace um uh, we call this episode lessons from the pandemic uh, what has been your biggest takeaway in terms of the challenges and opportunities facing caregivers um, uh, during the, after the pandemic? Well, as a Washington, I lovingly call us a group of nerds, but we're you know we're really an association of uh, policy nerds and and providers and payers and others who work on caregiving issues. So we had started to develop a framework to really describe what is it that families are facing. And as we were discussing it with our research working group, the researchers were saying, well, really a lot of these challenges families are facing all of the time and the pandemic is just making it more pronounced. So things like gatekeeping, not being able to be at the bedside or to participate in supported decision-making when someone's in the hospital or with their physician or lack of dependent care coverage, you know, having to try to balance what you're doing in the workplace when you don't have any place for the person you're caring for to safely be um, and having to make really hard decisions about your career versus your family obligations. So the pandemic, I think, has shown a light on some of those. It's also added uncertainty to just the caregiving journey for people of all ages. And it's created more isolation. That was something that came out loud and strong in our report. One out of four caregivers felt socially isolated um, or they felt alone. And that's something that technology can help, but it's hard to replace that in-person eye contact and physical contact or the hug from a friend. And that's something I think that many caregivers are struggling with because they can't get a break with the pandemic. So, so that's actually interesting, Grace. And let me transition the question to you, Paula. Grace talked about, we often talk about the social isolation facing the elderly. Um, what about the social isolation facing caregivers? Has that been a, a, a specific challenge of the pandemic that you've observed uh, in your reporting? Uh, it's been a problem for everyone, in, including you know, parents with young children, but it's probably more acute for older people and for their caregivers because their risks are so much higher. So when you are staying in place, when you're not even going out to doctor's appointments, maybe because you're doing it via telehealth, um, just the lack of human contact is acute for both generations. This is something that has direct health consequences. It's not just that you feel lonely, which is a a terrible feeling, um, but that it impacts your health directly. And the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Engineering and Medicine issued a report about this two years ago. I mean, no, it began working on a report about this two years ago. It just came out in February, just when the coronavirus was arising. Um, And it's pointing out that, that isolation has a real impact on things like heart disease and risk of stroke, much increased odds of dementia, depression, anxiety. It's, it's equal in its 
effect to things like smoking or obesity or being sedentary. It's, it's not minor. And when we shut down senior centers and you shut down nursing homes and you shut down parks and programs, um, the, the very things that uh, experts are telling older people to take advantage of when they can't, when they can't go to support groups, when their caregivers can't go to support groups, it just exacerbates all of this. And technology, I think, as Grace said, is only a partial solution. It's not the same. Um, so we have to find out, find ways to safely allow some kind of human contact, even during pandemics, because um, the risk to your health from isolation is, it's not as high as the risk of COVID, but it's high. Uh, both of you have uh, described um, the challenge here as uh, systemic or societal. Um, as you look at other societies, how they've dealt with the challenges of caregiving and the challenges of the pandemic, um, who should be who should we be looking for, uh, towards as a, as a model for how we care for our elderly and how we uh, take this on as a societal uh, obligation rather than a family obligation? <laughs> so the National Alliance for Caregiving we founded and convened a global coalition of caregiving organizations, and right now there's about 16 NGOs represented. The interesting thing uh, last year we were in Paris we had a big debate over this question of choice. Do you have a choice to take on the caregiving role? So in the U.S., it's split about 50-50. In our Asian American colleagues' countries, that idea that you would have a choice, that you could say, no, I'm not going to take care of my parents, it just isn't culturally literate. It doesn't translate because there is that expectation that we are part of a community. If you go to Europe and Eurocares, their perspective is, of course, you have a choice. And I have a choice to say no, and it's the government's responsibility. So one of the challenges in identifying a policy that will work for the United States is we've got pockets of both, right? We have communities that don't even have really a word or concept for what caregiver means. It would never even come to some people's minds that they should say, oh, I'm not going to do this um, because it is expected of them. And we have other communities that are over on that far spectrum. So I think one of the things that would help the U.S. to do, though, is to look at what's happening globally and implement some of those best practices, whether it's on a state or regional level here, and to see what works for the U.S. So that might be things like giving people the right to request telework or flexible schedules like they have in the U.K. It might be like the integration of the health and disability care systems like they've done in Australia or even work to provide more respite like they've done in Taiwan and Japan. So there are things that we can learn from what our neighbors are doing better. And certainly the pandemic is an example of that where some of our global neighbors have tackled this um, much more effectively than the United States. So there's an opportunity for us to, to really learn and to realize we are in a global neighborhood. It's not really just the U.S on its own, the world is global. And with technology, we're much closer to each other than we think. I would add that we do see some programs and places that are doing a good job and that we can learn from. So for example, in nursing homes, one problem here is that nursing homes like prisons, like cruise ships, um, put a lot of people in a, in a closed space with a common kitchen and a staff that rotates between them, and it's kind of a prescription 
for infection, but we also see that the greenhouses, which are a kind of nursing home that are decentralized, you might have small houses with 10 or 12 people on a campus. And they have been doing research and find that they actually have a far lower infection and death rate from COVID because they didn't have to expose 100 people down a long corridor with shared rooms and shared bathrooms. They and, they and some other traditional nursing homes did a better job. So we have examples in front of us that we could learn from. And one is that nursing home advocates are saying, okay, we should not have shared rooms anymore. Not a smart thing to do. We need private rooms. And even if we don't have the greenhouse model, because the greenhouses, lovely as they are, and I've visited some, they're a tiny number, a tiny number out of the whole nursing home population. But you could make smaller communities within nursing homes that didn't share a kitchen and a staff, and you would have some of the same benefits. So there are examples popping up here and there uh, of programs that work. We also see, for example, that there are a lot of people, especially when they're sidelined or furloughed in a pandemic, that want to reach out and be useful to their older neighbors. And so there are programs of um, remote visiting, but mostly phone calls that put people together so someone is checking in on you every day. There is a volunteer force that we've never really tapped that, that is there and wants to help. But when it comes to public attention in this way, a lot of people say, I could make a phone call. I could make two phone calls. How can I be useful aside from standing on my fire escape and banging pots at 7 p.m. in Manhattan? Um, so it makes me feel like there are people who are willing to take a look at this. We have to just harness it somehow. That's Paula Spann, author of the new old age blog at the New York Times, and Grace Whiting, President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Alliance for Caregiving. Today's show was produced by Carrie Thompson with production assistance from Ellie Wartell. Please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can find out more about us by visiting our website, longevity.stanford.edu. You've been listening to When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken Stern.